In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The past is never dead. It's not even past, is a famous line by William Faulkner, but it also is very representative of what the Jews, how they regarded history. But for the Jewish mind and the Christian mind now also, this can be said of the future. The future has taken place. It's not even future. Tonight we celebrate the night Jesus instituted his eschatological meal, the Lord's Supper. And I use the word eschatological because this is the night Jesus asked his disciples to participate in his death, in which he meant and in, to initiate the new exodus, his triumph over the oppression of sin and the inbreaking of God's new kingdom on earth, and to anticipate the bridal back banquet at the consummation of all time. Nowhere is it clear that Jesus saw the manner of his death as a fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system than the way in which he celebrated the last Passover meal he had with his disciples. By his words as well as his actions, we can understand that Jesus' intent was to set his kingdom inauguration in motion on the eve of his passion. In our Exodus passage, we have God's commandment to the Israelites for the way in which they are to celebrate the first Passover. These, these directions parallel those of future Passovers, which are to be held in a remembrance of the first. As part of the instructions, the Lord commanded Moses to tell the Israelites, you shall observe this day as a perpetual celebration of the Lord. In this passage, the Lord commands Israel to live a life of remembrance before him. Other festivals were mandated later, and they all served as a foundation for their worship. These festivals helped the covenant community remember the great events of the past. For God's command to remember was not simply to recall. Jacob Neusner explains that for the Jewish people, the past is a presence and their very lives were formed around the past. This people heard the stories of the scriptures and found themselves right there in its record, quote unquote. The remembrance was to be a personal remembrance as well as a corporate one. A Mishnah tractate says, in every generation the individual is obligated to view himself as though he himself had left Egypt for it says on account of what the Lord did to me when I moved out of Egypt. In other words, the participants are to insert themselves into this story of salvation. It is important though at, that we are careful not to reduce the Passover to a prefiguring of Jesus's death or even to imply that the Lord's Supper has somehow rendered the Passover feast meaningless or obsolete. The Passover Supper remains the ritual event in which the Jews remember and actualize their redemption and beginning as the people of God. It is also important that we understand just how Jesus transformed this meal into a different meal.
So let's talk about how this meal is an enactment of the new Passover of the Lamb. The Passover observance began in the temple with elaborate liturgies involving the sacrifice of the Paschal lambs. The sheer number of lambs being sacrificed is extraordinary. In one account, Josepha report, Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports the amount is somewhere around 265,000. Um, even if this number is exaggerated, it is a telling for the reconstructing what the first century Passover in the temple was actually like. The city of Jerusalem was filled to capacity. Jesus seems to have followed the few customs that are known about Passover at this time, as it was celebrated in the first century. He began with a prayer at the beginning of the meal over the bread. Jesus' raising of the cups and his refusal to raise the fourth one until the inauguration of his kingdom. He begins with taking a loaf of bread. And as our passage tonight says, when he gave, he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just thus in the Passover meal, Jesus shared with his disciples, just as Jesus had foretold in John 6, when he told his disciples that his flesh was to be eaten to provide communion with God, just as the Passover lamb was eaten to celebrate the Israelites' communion with God. But we have a few questions. First of all, why was it not the lamb that Jesus pointed to rather than the unleavened bread? Why did Jesus identify the unleavened bread with his own body and command his disciples to eat it? Well, Jesus' identification of the bread as his body only really mimics the way the Jews understood the connection between the bread and the lamb. In the instructions the Jews had for the meal, they were told that they shall eat the flesh of the roasted lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Also, they are to eat all of the lamb, the whole body. So when Jesus refers to the bread as his body, it is the implication that Jesus expects to die. It is a shocking statement, but in the Passover context, the meaning was clear. In the Torah, the Passover lamb does not die for nothing, but so that the people of Israel might be delivered from the slavery of Pharaoh. And like the first Passover lamb, Jesus will also suffer a sacrificial death. Also, the Passover lamb was ritually eaten in a meal, and the sacrifice was not complete by the death of the lamb, but by eating the flesh. Hence, Jesus identifying himself as the new Passover lamb, it follows not only would he die sacrificially, but that he would be consumed in some manner by those who benefit from his death. Taking the bread for Jesus signals his participation in the redemption of the new Exodus. And any first century Jew would understand that this was true because the whole sacrifice must be eaten. So in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When Jesus identifies the wine as his blood of the covenant, he identifies it as the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Remember when the ceremony at Mount Sinai, when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he read the, peop the book of the covenant to them, and then he threw the sacrificial blood upon the people and marked with them and said, Behold, the covenant of the Lord has made in you in accordance with all of these words. So we know that blood is associated with covenant. But there's discontinuity that many scholars will raise, and they will say no first century Jew would have ever commanded um, his disciples to drink the blood of a sacrifice. But this is misunderstanding what the new sacrifice is, because the prohibition against the Israelites drinking the animal blood is because the life is in the blood, and it is that life is given to make atonement. So that is also the reason that Jesus commands his disciples to drink the wine, because he identifies it as the blood of his life. If the 12 disciples are to have a share in the life that will be poured out in suffering and death, they must consume the wine that is being poured out in sacrifice for sin. Jesus saw himself as the new Moses as he recapitulated the Sinai covenant and established a new covenant in his blood. So when the cup of the Passover wine was poured out, the blood of the Passover, okay, I'm sorry, the Passover wine was never poured out. This is a reference to the blood of the Passover lamb that was poured out on the altar of the sacrifice in the temple. So there's definitely a link here with Jesus referring to his blood being poured out. In other words, he is saying, I am the eschatological Passover lamb whose blood will be poured out as a sacrifice for others. At the Passover, an image of the pouring out of blood must have produced in the disciples' mind a foreboding image. For the pouring of blood is a very strong first century Passover image. Let's go back to how many lambs were sacrificed. 250,000 lambs. And these lambs were sacrificed in the temple. So in rabbinic literature, it is claimed that there was so much blood poured out during the Passover that the priest stood in the blood up to their ankles. And, and the uh, rabbinic literature states it is a good thing for the priest to walk in the blood up to their ankles. This is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So we understand that Jesus is deliberately instituting a new Passover that he expects the apostles and disciples to reenact after his death. But the Passover story does not exhaust the meaning of the Last Supper or the Eucharist, as it also was seen as the new manna and also the imagery of covenant was so strong. 
we read in Mark 14 that at the Last Supper, Jesus declared, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And by saying these words, Jesus is placing this meal and his actions in the context of Israel's hope for a new kingdom. Remember, there were four cups. If you have done the Passover meal, the liturgy that we gave you, you might have noticed there were four cups and we only drank three. And that is because at the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, only three cups were drunk because Jesus did not finish the fourth cup until the new kingdom would dawn. So in this way, the Last Supper becomes a prophetic sign that Jesus is setting the kingdom inauguration in motion, but it will only be complete with his death and resurrection and fully complete when he drinks that final cup in the bridal supper of the lamb that is predicted and portrayed in Revelation. So the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the messianic table of the future, breaking through to the present in the overlapping of the new creation and the old. This is why Paul says in our passage we read tonight, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, with each celebration of the Lord's Supper, we, as well as the early Christians, were proclaiming, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. So, in conclusion, um, we, I want to talk a little bit about the Corinthians passage that we read tonight that is a part of this larger segment of the book of 1 Corinthians, where he outlines to the Corinthians the meaning of the Eucharist, its difference from pagan meals, and the call for them to properly celebrate communion in the context of a community of people who serve each other and where there is not a distinction between the rich and the poor. But at the beginning of this discourse, Paul makes this very significant statement. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So, of course, Paul's meaning that our participation in Christ's sacrifice is attributed, imputed to us because we have partaken of Jesus' sacrifice, the whole sacrifice, his body and blood. So the Jewish background comes into play. But there's another point that's being made here, and that is about the vertical relationship between the church and their participation in Christ, but also about the horizontal relationship. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. The significance of the one loaf is placed against the need to be one united body when we partake of this one loaf. In other words, in the Eucharist, the church becomes the church. 
in its fellowship and participation in the koinonia of Jesus' sacrifice. Although in John's Gospel the Eucharist itself is not mentioned, Jesus washing his disciples' feet is. In fact, the language and images of the Passover provide an effective way to help worshipers enter into the washing of feet, sharing the Lord's Supper, and later as we will strip the altar. In Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, he was demonstrating to them what sacrificial love looks like. He embodied it. In the middle of the Passover meal, we have this image of Jesus getting up and bathing the disciples' feet. They are shocked, and Peter protests at first, but then he realizes the significance of the washing and begs Jesus to clean his entire body, surely a prefiguration of baptism. But Jesus has the final word. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. This was said on the eve of the greatest demonstration of his love, his death for us. So as our feet are washed tonight and we enact Jesus' last meal, remember we, each of us here, is the body of Christ. We are those disciples for whom Jesus is betrayed, denied, handed over, and crucified. Amen.